Welcome to the Activist Insight Podcast, a segment that takes you through the top shareholder activism stories as told by Activist Insight Monthly. I'm Ilana DeRay, a financial reporter with Activist Insight, and this month, we're asking, was it a super idea for Third Point Partners to chase a board overhaul at Campbell's? Is there a future for troubled Greek jeweler, Folly Folly? What's next for Cat Eye on Capital and Crescent Point Energy? But first, a look at environmental, social, and governance concerns within the realm of shareholder activism. Our cover story explores whether ESG is an opportunity or a threat to activist investors. Environmental, social, and governance matters have become increasingly influential in the asset management world. Institutional investors like BlackRock and Vanguard have been integrating ESG metrics into their investment and engagement processes, and activist investors aren't far behind. Value Act Capital Partners and JANA Partners have already launched separate impact funds, and others are sure to follow. Joining us today is Activist Insight Editor-in-Chief Josh Black, here to tell us the pros and cons of adopting ESG considerations when investing. Hi, Josh. Welcome to the show. For this piece, you spoke to a handful of activists and advisors who recognize that a growing number of investors are integrating ESG screens in their investment portfolios. Why is ESG increasingly important and what are investors looking at? Yeah, so ESG isn't a totally new thing, but it is increasingly coming into the mainstream. And people in the governance world who dealt with issues of governance and shareholder activism kind of told me that they had hitherto pronounced ESG with a silent G because environmental and social issues were kind of seen as separate. Now there's an increasing focus on consolidating all of those three issues under one roof, which would be kind of the stewardship team of a major institutional investor and as a result it's coming up in annual meeting season and we're increasingly starting to see it filter into activist campaigns at the same time. Uh, In terms of what people are focused on, issues that are connected with the board and board composition have naturally been picked up quite quickly, so gender diversities and other kinds of diversity on the board, and that is now kind of filtering into looking at diversity within the workforce, issues like the Me Too movement, scandals like Wells Fargo have kind of raised the issue of corporate culture and human capital management. So investors are increasingly interested in how employees are treated as well as consumers and things that impact the top line. So those are kind of some of the key issues. It's still kind of early to say whether environmental and social issues are viewed as important as governance issues. Uh, There's a kind of view that they tend to follow on from governance, but they are used to assess the quality of management teams, to mitigate potential business risks, and in some cases to generate returns. So I think you'll start to see more ESG branded products as well as more talk about it at at the stewardship level. So what challenges may this pose for activist investors? Yeah, activists have historically not spent a great deal of time talking about environmental or social issues, although they're pretty expert in governance. So it's something they're going to have to learn up on quite quickly if they want to uh, impress uh, the voters in these proxy contests. I think the main challenge is really proving that you care equally about all three strands. But then there are some knock-on challenges. Generally speaking, environmental and social issues aren't fixed as quickly as governance, where you can swap in a few board members or tweak compensation. And as a result, you know, some activists may find themselves sticking around for longer to see the benefit of their changes. 
How can activists use ESG? What are some suggestions for how to integrate it into their investment? Yeah, so there's three main strategies that I kind of outline in the piece, and they blend into each other somewhat, but for our purposes, let's separate them out. The first and most kind of cynical, I guess, is that activists are just going to use this to beat companies. They're going to bring it up in their proxy contests. They're going to target companies that are at a disadvantage on some environmental or social metric and hope that that gives the activists an opportunity to question management's ability and the board's oversight of management. And you've seen that a little bit. Uh, It hasn't been the main focus of a proxy contest to date, but you have seen some criticisms of diversity issues and general oversight. Uh, The second approach is to kind of integrate it into your concentrated portfolio and so that's something that Blue Harbor Group uh, Connecticut based activists have been doing for two or three years uh, and they kind of explained to me that it's something that really helps them understand the risks and opportunities in their investments they're rolling out training across the firm and they were quite clear that they are not only interested in companies with gold-plated environmental, social or governance uh, characteristics. They are willing to invest in companies that, you know, maybe are a little bit suboptimal and help them get to where they need to be. So as long as they've got some ideas about how to fix those problems, ESG is kind of an opportunity. And the third strategy that activists might consider is to launch an impact fund. And that's where you have a separate fund, you target environmental and social opportunities for alpha generation separately. And so we had JANA partners earlier in the year kind of invested in Apple and asked for more parental controls on the iPhone, which Apple introduced on the latest version of iOS, if you check your phone. And Value Act Capital have also launched an impact fund, which seems to be focused on growth businesses that offer environmentally or socially friendly alternatives uh, or solutions to problems that exist today. So, you know, lots of energy firms that use more renewables, energy firms that are transitioning from non-renewables to renewables, and uh, adult education, uh, you know, to give some examples. So you mentioned before that some activists will consider ESG because they believe it adds value to the company. But I'm curious to know if there are other reasons why an activist may consider bringing it up. Yeah, so I think activists clearly want to look like they're being responsible stewards of their investors' capital, but also other shareholders' capital. There's been a big debate about the importance of activists and their influence on the stock market, not just at the companies they target but way beyond that with the kind of ripple effect of companies responding to them so i think the ones who can do a good job of showing that they care about esg issues and have some awareness of how to fix esg problems will a attract more capital and b attract more support for their objectives thanks for being here josh thanks Cation Capital entered the world of shareholder activism earlier this year with the intention of improving Crescent Point Energy's corporate performance. Yet its battle with the Canadian oil and gas company left unfinished business to sort in the upcoming proxy season. Cation announced in April that it was nominating a four-person slate for election to Crescent Point's board, claiming the firm suffered from a leadership failure. Yet Cation encountered a number of roadblocks along the way, ultimately leading to a full defeat in the contest. 
Cation's founder Sandy Edmondstone told me his firm learned from the experience, as is to be expected with any first-timer. Yet even with the proxy contest loss, Cation still considers much of the experience to be a win. Since Cation launched its campaign, Crescent Point has terminated five top executives, including its former CEO, Scott Saxberg. It also forced the resignation of Chairman Peter Bannister, cut costs by reducing its workforce, and abandoned its previously announced five-year organic growth plan for a strategy similar to the one presented by the activists, which included cost-saving initiatives as well as more transparency around cash flow, debt, costs, and dividends. This is not the end of the story for Cation and Crescent Point. The activist is still a shareholder and is keeping close watch on the firm. And that may include another proxy fight, Edmundstone hinted. Looks like Crescent Point better watch its back. After all, Cat's got nine lives. Mm, good. Mm, good. That's what soup is. Mm. Bad. This is the message Dan Loeb's Third Point Partners has been pushing on Campbell Soup shareholders for the past four months. The activist investor first sought a sale of the firm in July, claiming the undervalued soup maker can maximize shareholder value through a deal. But Campbell's board was not as enthusiastic about a transaction and ruled out a sale a month later, saying the board had and would continue to consider all options. Since then, Third Point launched a proxy contest to replace the entrenched board. The activist also offered two alternatives to a sale, an operational turnaround, and a split of the company into separate entities focused on snacks and meals. Yet Third Point is facing an uphill battle. Campbell's founding Dorrance family owns 41% of the shares, meaning the activist needs practically all the other shareholders in its corner to win the vote. Plus, a buyer is nowhere to be seen, and Kraft Heinz shareholder Warren Buffett expressed skepticism about a bid, leaving a hole in the activist's plan. In an effort to eliminate the first roadblock, Third Point sued Campbell for allegedly publishing misleading information about directors in its proxy materials. A court failed to expedite the case, so the proxy contest will continue as planned. However, the activist said it would continue to use the court case to surface potentially embarrassing information. It's a fight that leaves investors with few good options. A vote later this month will reveal whether shareholders were prepared to take a leap of faith and change the recipe. Quintessential Capital Management's Gabriel Grego is a short seller who prefers to strike with rarity and precision. And when he does, his voice is heard far and wide. For his latest target, Grego bet against Folly Folly, noting that the Greek luxury jewelry maker grossly overstated its revenues in most regions. At first, Folly Folly denied the accusation, but its rebuttal did not satisfy the Hellenic Capital Market Commission, Greece's market regulator, which initiated a probe into the company. A subsequent independent audit by Alvarez and Marcel, ordered by the watchdog, concluded that the firm overstated its inventories for 2017 by 17 times and its receivables by 7 times. Following the revelation, the company's founder and chairman, Dimitrios Kutsoliotsos, resigned in an attempt to save his son George from having to quit as CEO. Regardless, the company's financial situation is so dire that a sale may be the only way to avoid an outright bankruptcy or a dramatic restructuring led by angry creditors. With only 6.4 million euros in cash, instead of 300 million euros as it had claimed, the company may find it hard to pay down its 500 million euros in debt. A painful restructuring is the most likely outcome. And now, for a couple of stories that didn't make it into the magazine. Nelson Peltz's Tryon Partners is back more than a year after its battle with Procter & Gamble, 
this time targeting paint giant PPG Industries. The activist investor recommended the firm bring back former CEO Chuck Bunch three years after he left the role, noting that the chemicals manufacturer's organic sales and EPS growth have stalled, its total shareholder returns have lagged peers, and it has issued a profit warning three years running. Tryon also urged the firm to commence a strategic review, improve capital structure efficiency, and accelerate positive environmental, social, and governance changes, a demand closely related to the Activist Insight Monthly's ESG feature story. And while the board said it was willing to work with Tryon on these topics, it refused to budge on the issue of its leadership, noting that the directors unanimously support Michael McGarry as chairman and CEO. We have a long history of listening to our shareholders, and we hope that Tryon is willing to accept our offer for a continuing, constructive, private dialogue, PPG said in a statement. In other news, Bill Ackman's Pershing Square Capital Management is back on the scene with two new investments in October. On October 9th, the activist disclosed a $900 million stake in Starbucks and said the coffee chain stock could double in price over three years. The Starbucks holding appears to be passive for now. A source close to the investor told Activist Inside Online it would be generally accurate to say that Pershing Square is waiting to see how management executes before taking any steps. Separately, Ackman's fund bought 10.9 million shares in Hilton Worldwide. The company's stock has suffered from poor prospects in the hotel industry as competitors like Airbnb snatch customers. Ackman previously tried to build a position in Hilton, but the stock ran away from him, so he bided his time for a bargain. Ackman's investment in Hilton marks a return to his real estate investing roots and may prove to be an interesting situation if the activist decides to push for a change. An update is expected on the activist's quarterly conference on November 14th. That's all for this month's episode of the Activist Insight Podcast. If you like what you hear or want to read more, you can subscribe to Activist Insight Monthly by emailing subscriptions at activistinsight.com. For comments or questions about the podcast, or if you want something discussed on a future episode, please email press at activistinsight.com. Please do rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you are using to help others access our reporting. I'm Ilana Duray. Thanks for listening.